Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. It is John Pollock and Brandon Thurston. Hello. What's up? Were you having cold feet about uh, doing this? <laughs> I, I had you ready there, and then Brandon just got up and, and left. He must yes. have... Uh, no, I'm back. Attention was diverted, but you were right back here as we went. Yes, by. I'm back. Well, we have a, a big show uh, set for everybody as we are going to be talking about uh, WWE's return to Saudi Arabia for Night of Champions and what a lead-in we had, Brandon. Yes. The, the press, press conference just that ended. just wrapped up in Jeddah. They wanted to Thanks be done watching. in time for us. Um, did, did they at all promote our, our show at the end? Did Michael Cole mention go on over to the post-wrestling WrestleNomics YouTube? I don't think so. They, they did mention Kevin Owens did introduce Sami Zayn and said that he's this is the man you've been waiting for for five years. He didn't explain why why everyone was waiting for him for five years. So I was a little confused about that. But but maybe that's a little bit of a hint of what we're going to talk talk about today. Well, we will be discussing that. And we have the perfect person to speak about the WWE's relationship with the government of Saudi Arabia. Of course, they had done shows in Saudi Arabia prior to 2018, but that is when I think the attention really did uh, come upon uh, WWE's involvement when they signed this 10-year deal with the General Sports Authority. Now the General Entertainment Authority, I believe, is sort of the uh, the, the name of the that's, that's entity among, that they are in business Among with. The, the, the people and entities who Triple H thanked earlier today. Well, our guest today, you have seen his work in the New York Times, The Guardian, a writer for Bloody Elbow, and also his own Substack, uh, Sports Politica. And I would venture to guess, Brandon, uh, the only reporter we have had on who has had a first-person perspective that he has written with the title, Are the Death Threats Worth It? And we're talking about Kareem Zidane, who is with us. Kareem, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a while since we uh, have had you on, but... Uh, Definitely wanted to uh, chat with you going into this weekend and all of the tremendous work that you do out there. It's it's vital stuff. Well, thank you so much, John. That was an outstanding uh, introduction. Very, very kind of you, honestly. And Brandon, it's a pleasure to talk to you as well. This will be our first time uh, chatting, but I've followed your work for a long time as well. So Thanks, looking man. very much forward to this We're conversation. Very excited to talk with you, Kareem. Let's start with kind of a big question, and that is WWE and this relationship with Saudi Arabia. I mean, Brandon has always gone through the numbers, and this is roughly worth to them $50 million per show. It's a, a gigantic uh, amount of 
revenue year. for the company. Yeah, two shows a year. So we're looking at about $100 million. This is not uh, a traditional show where the government of Saudi Arabia is selling tickets to offset this amount or are looking to make this money back. So what is, from a, just a simplistic question, what is the government of Saudi Arabia paying with such an exorbitant fee for WWE to come over two times a year? Oh my goodness. It sounds like a simple question actually, but it's, it's quite a multi-pronged strategic process that, uh, that Saudi Arabia has sort of been honing over the past few years. There's quite a few reasons for Saudi to spend this much money to bring the WWE amongst other sports and entertainment ventures that it's brought on. But really the WWE has sort of been this central, uh, uh, you know, crowning jewel almost of of, of uh, Saudi Arabia's achievements lately. But to list just a few of what of the things that Saudi is interested in, let's say it's it's very interested in increasing tourism and and revitalizing other economic se- uh, sectors. That's something they've speak, spoken openly about as part of their Vision 2030 master plan, where they're trying to eliminate Saudi Arabia's dependence on oil. Now, the other thing that everybody talks about all the time is that events like these help distract from human rights abuses, a process that's known as sports washing. The truth is I find sports washing to be a limited term that I try and use less frequently now than I have before. Why? Because sports washing really just focuses on sort of this reputation laundering aspect of Saudi Arabia's uh, agreement uh, with, with, uh, with the WWE. But that's not a fair analysis here. That's just one of several segments here. So we've already explained that there is an increase in tourism. There is an attempt to alter international perception and raise Saudi Arabia's prestige and its appearance as a entertainment and sporting hub, a global hub that's capable of rivaling the West. This takes it a step further when we talk about how they use these sports events as a tool for diplomacy. Now, we're going to get that into a bit more detail here when we talk about Sami Zayn and some of the things that have happened on WWE shows uh, in Saudi Arabia. But here's the one that I think is really key and that sports washing does not describe at all. And that's Saudi Arabia's uh, uh, attempt to reassert itself as a regional superpower, or at least uh, attempt some form of regional supremacy in the Middle East, Eurasia, and Asia region. And by hosting things like the WWE and other sports events, Saudi Arabia takes one giant step forward in, 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 in really achieving this massive ambition. And just to, like, I think they are selling tickets. Triple H referred to the, the event that's happening tomorrow as the fastest selling event that they've done so far, um, in the, in the country. Um, but I'm, it's, it's probably a drop in the bucket compared to $50 million that the government is, is, is paying them. Um, I mind you, $50 million sounds like a lot of money, but for an oil heavyweight like Saudi Arabia, it's pennies. It really is pennies. We've seen the amount they're willing to spend on a single athlete like Cristiano Ronaldo say. So. 50 to 100 million sounds like an extraordinary sum. And it is when you break it down relative to what the WWE makes and in live gate, for instance, and even at WrestleManias, uh, which, which you've done very well, Brandon. Like this is more than double. It's a, it's a two day WrestleMania now. The WrestleMania this year is $21.6 million. This will be just this one of that $50 million. We'll do a <laughs> exactly. one. It'll be $100 million. And in, in the total picture of WWE's total revenue for the year, they reported about $1.3 billion last mm-hmm. year. Um, so that comes out to like seven and a half percent of their total revenue for a whole, a whole year. Extraordinary, really, and very significant. Well, for Saudi, it's it's not it's not really uh, that much. So for them, they I, I some people would say, okay, well, Saudi's overpaying. 
I'd say the opposite. I say the things they're attempting to achieve, these ambitions, they're priceless. And for them, it's more than it's it's absolutely a drop in the bucket and worthwhile for Saudi Arabia to spend this. If we're talking about increased uh, uh, diplomatic capabilities, added measures of soft power where they're able to really allure and attract uh you know, politicians, countries, and fans, and and really create loyal fan bases in the process. When Saudi Arabia brings in, uh, let's stick to WWE here. The more it brings the WWE in, and the more it starts to host less infomercial style events and more just standard WWE premium live events, as they call it, the quicker its its fan base is going to grow, both in Saudi Arabia and internationally. I've seen that just based off my the the response to my latest article on on. Uh, on Saudi Arabia for Sports Politica, which is titled uh, WWE's Propaganda Spectacle, most people are quite uh, hesitant and defensive now, to be honest, to really target Saudi Arabia as much. They don't see, they're like, well, this is going to hurt the fans in, in, the, in, in Saudi Arabia. This is going to hurt fans in general. Well, this, this event doesn't really change anything overall. Now that's where sport, where, that's where reputation laundering really takes hold, and that's one of the key aspects of sports watching that Saudi Arabia has relied on traditionally. When you bring in a Newcastle United, just as they had purchased, you're bringing in a loyal fan base. When you bring in the WWE and host spectacular mega shows and bring in a Logan Paul, etc., well, you're creating that loyal fan base that's going to fight for you and that's going to defend you. That's yeah. what Saudi Arabia is doing here. So really, it's absolutely priceless. $50 million is nothing for them. So, some of the feedback I get when I you know, post about <laughs> this or write about it is that, you know, I mean, look at the shows and people can, can go on Peacock and of course, on the mm-hmm. W Network and they can watch these shows. And I mean, you look out in the crowd. I just watched a press conference. These, these are super enthusiastic WWE mm-hmm. fans. Everything seems pretty normal here. What? Mm-hmm. And then I hear these people in media making this big deal about it like it's this controversial thing. So I, I was wondering, too, if you could tell us why, why is the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia a, pro- a problematic government? So let's start by, by – by, uh, I want to touch on those fans that you're talking about. There's really nothing to be said other than those fans are legitimate fans. They're there to yep. be happy. And, 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 and Saudi citizens are no different to citizens anywhere else. As a matter of fact, the only real difference is that they're stuck under a theocratic monarchy and don't really have a voice or a say of their own. They don't have voting capacity. They don't have the ability to say whether they like or dislike something. So when we criticize countries like Saudi Arabia, we're specifically criticizing the governments. I, as an Egyptian, know what it's like to be raised somewhere where I have absolutely no say in what the government chooses to do and what it's like to be under a military dictatorship. So Saudi it's citizens... a very important military. distinction that we always tr- try to make here is that like, this is not paintbrushing an entire Absolutely. country, and it is the, the actions of, of a government that can be very disconnected from a, exactly. an audience that you see. Well, that being said, Saudi Arabia's government, unfortunately, the theocratic monarchy we've been talking about, has been extraordinarily problematic, and it has been problematic for decades. But to talk about some of its more recent developments, it just recently put an end and reached a ceasefire or at least some sort of peace settlement with Yemen, where it had waged war for many years, creating one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world over the past few decades. Uh, Its treatment of women continues to be appalling. Now they they are jailing dissidents and human rights activists and women's rights activists who simply speak out. Like truly, we're talking about individual tweets are leading to are yielding 35 to 40 year prison sentences. Just horrific behavior. And uh, there's there's a wide other range of, of issues going on in Saudi Arabia. Talk about the gentrification required to create this ultra-modern city called Nome, which is leading to Bedouins being uh, 
relocated and just kicked out of their homelands. We're talking their generational homelands as well. Uh, let's not even get into the murder of, of, of Jamal Khashoggi, which is one of many journalists who have been targeted by, by Saudi Arabia. Uh, and he's the one who was actually legitimately assassinated. Uh, there is all sorts of things to be said about Saudi Arabia's tactics uh, within, throughout the Middle East and international uh, tactics as well. I'd say it's not fantastic that Saudi Arabia has chosen to help uh, welcome back Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, into the fold once again. So its attempts to uh, really emerge as a regional superpower is actually quite devastating for the rest of the Middle East region. I, as somebody who really came of age during the 2011 Arab Spring and really had a vision for a very different Arab world, what are we, 20, 12 years later now, it's very disappointing and heartbreaking to see Saudi Arabia lead the return of such a wide array of authoritarian leaders. That picture that we saw at the Arab summit, I don't know if either of you really uh, followed this at all or saw this mm-hmm. picture where it was Erdogan, Bashar al-Assad, Egypt's president, Sisi, all these dictator after dictator just posing side by side in this really fantastic dictator's postcard that they really took there. And it's it's heartbreaking. And when I think of that as heartbreaking, I think of how Saudi Arabia is really leading the charge on that. And that's just one of a wide range of human rights abuses that Saudi continues to commit, unfortunately, the Saudi government, of course. Yeah. And I think pe- people defending it will, will, would say, I mean, look at what WWE is doing. They they went there for the first few shows, the first mm-hmm. year or two. There were no women's matches. Mm-hmm. Now there are women's matches. Now there are quite a few women who go over for the shows. Is Is that causing any kind of or contributing to any kind of positive change in Saudi Arabia or has the government's practices gotten any better since 2018, since this deal started? So I don't think the WWE has contributed to any changes uh, themselves, but I think that as Saudi Arabia's political and social ambitions change, so do does the WWE's approach to these events. I think they have to adapt in tandem with Saudi Arabia. I don't think it's happening the other way around. I don't think, I think a lot of sports organizations that are hosting events in places like uh, sports and entertainment, this, this goes across a wide range of things. I think they like to make the argument that when I go to these, to these countries, the Formula One does this a lot, actually. Uh, when we're hosting events in these specific authoritarian places, we're helping, you know, lead to more progressive institutions and we're having these discussions that are going to lead to eventual changes. That sounds like a lot of white knighting to me, honestly, and it sounds like just uh, massive egotism on the West side that they actually think they have that kind of influence. It has, I think, very clearly shown that Saudi Arabia does not bend to anyone, nor does the United Arab Emirates, nor does a wide range of other countries, nor does China, for that matter. So the idea that the West thinks that they're going to host events in a range of places, and by the West, I mean North America and Europe, and, and a wide variety of places, and that it's going to suddenly lead to these changes, like women are just going to be allowed to do things. I disagree entirely just based on my own personal experiences and what I'm seeing from these events. What we're actually seeing is that Saudi Arabia is taking these very strategic decisions. They're saying, okay, well, if we're attempting to actually do some reputation laundering here, well, we have to show that or that we're trying to uh, present this reformed nation or reformed kingdom. Well, then we have to make some... uh, some changes. And these were among some of the superficial changes that they made, which is loosening up the guardianship uh, laws in Saudi Arabia, allowing women to drive, which is, I mean, the bare minimum bar. Like we're talking about the absolute bare minimum is what Saudi Arabia was being celebrated for here. And, and what is the guardianship for people who don't know? 
So male guardianship in Saudi Arabia is how women are generally just under the control of their closest male relative or their husband. It could be their father, husband, etc. That means they require uh, permission for travel. It's it, it's basically an extremely institutionalized patriarchal structure that uh, offers women absolutely no autonomy over themselves for the most part. This has it sounds like a parent-child relationship. Kind very of. much so. And women can simply not even leave the country without permission. This has changed a lot. Now women past the age of 21 are able to do so. Uh, there are still issues about, you know... Uh, uh, who who gets the child in, in, in situations of divorce, whether women are even able to ask for divorce. There's a lot of details that, that are still being ironed. Now, the problem is, at the end of the day, I mean, we can we can go over every little detail. The problem is, is that they haven't abolished the system. They haven't abolished the system, and that tells you that nothing has changed to that significant degree. Not to mention, we still have women's rights activists who are currently under travel, travel bans in Saudi Arabia, unable to leave the country. There are women's rights activists, Saudi women's rights activists, living all across the world now, Screaming off the, like, the top of roofs right now, telling you that this is not a progressive country and nobody seems to listen. Why? Because, you know, a Sasha Banks or whoever's having, like, crying in tears in a ring just because she performed in Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or wherever, and everybody sees this as a wonderful romanticized story. At the end of the day, this is what fans love, and the WWE is almost better at selling this than most sports organizations are, and they love selling you emotion and love getting you invested in something and thinking that what you're watching really matters. WWE has been doing this for years and years now and this was no different they did it very well which is why i call these events a propaganda spectacle the idea that the, their women's evolution led to reform in saudi arabia is a giant lie it's an absolute lie but it's great for tv and for many people they they are not investigating the the geopolitics of this it is exactly. for many people two snapshots a year of what saudi arabia is to them and they can mm-hmm. look at the simplistic reform as they see it on their WWE network mm-hmm. window that, well, there weren't women here before there are now that's progress. And I can feel good about these shows. And I think at their core, many fans want to feel good mm-hmm. about these shows. And you go to that uh, inaugural event of this deal, which was the greatest Royal rumble. <laughs> and that was one I went into as well of, you know, I can see like there were a lot of problems with this government, but what kind of show would we be getting? Would it just be simply, any other wrestling show and you watch that and you immediately realize this was not like any other wrestling show. You could not as someone in me or Brandon's position, cover this like any other wrestling show. And you understood what these were and going so far as to shoot an angle on that show with the Davaris. I mean, going to a level um, that was stunning really Kareem when I, I'd be curious because I know that was a show that you watched. I was floored, honestly, because I remember right before the event, uh, David Bixenspan and I did a piece for Deadspin, basically trying to explain what's going on, what's Saudi's intentions, why is Saudi hosting a WWE event. But I think even with what we predicted and what we expected we'd see, which is sort of an infomercial-style event, propaganda display, promoting uh, the kingdom and reforms and tourism, all that was there. I really never saw it coming that they would actually uh, host a segment that played off religious tensions, uh, sectarian strife, and just the significant, very significant geopolitical rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. A rivalry that's uh, that's diffusing now, let's say. Very, very different in 2023 than it was in 2018. But very, very significant uh, moment there. And something that I don't think the WWE was fully aware of what it was doing. 
<laughs> but for Saudi Arabia, it was an extraordinarily efficient piece of propaganda and something that they can't achieve from a standard sports event. If sports are just your op- is, at the end of the day, what you're going to get from sports is, is competitive action. You can't predict or create these added scenarios, these propaganda spectacles. Uh, for, for them, but WWE, because at the end of the day, it's, it's glorified uh, theatrics. It's perfect. It's a perfect platform for stuff like this. And we really, really saw it with the Greatest Royal Rumble. That was a segment I could not have seen coming. And it clearly left its mark because I believe the Davari brothers, I, I, one of them, I think, had uh, claimed to have received death threats thereafter Aria, from, yeah. from the Iranians. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about the angle where the the Saudi recruits are in the ring. Davari brothers, yes. who are Iranian, come out waving the Iranian flag, getting lots of heel heat, and they get run off. I believe it's by Mansoor before he was signed at that point. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I could not have seen that coming, honestly. Yeah, it's it's still shocking when I think about it. I mean, I, I mentioned it again in my most recent piece just because it was one of those things that are that I don't, I don't think I'll ever forget about it, the WWE show. And people have talked about how well, it's not like the WWE hasn't played off of nationalist angles before and really uh, ill-advised political angles. I always think of uh, Sergeant Slaughter and stuff like that. And I think of uh, the sort of like 9-11 terrorism angle they had at one point in the early 2000s, uh, yeah. something like that. I can't remember that. Uh, on on that 7-7, they had already taped a, a basically a terrorist angle involving Mohammed Hassan. Hassan, yeah. There we go. Yeah. And, and then 7-7 happened. They, you know, the, the show was being aired two days later on July 7th, 2005, and they decided to air it anyway. UPN, the network, ended up mm-hmm. r- running a, a crawl under it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we've, we've, we've seen the WWE play off these really ill-advised political angles before. But the difference really here is, is that they're doing it at the behest of an authoritarian government that's paying them very handsomely to host these shows. There's significant contra- conflicts of interest. This isn't about anymore about the WWE's attempt to you know, get get eyeballs on it or, or get attention or get a big story or a big angle or get heat. That, that that couldn't have been it at all. This was clearly a Saudi strategy. It's Saudi Arabia taking an opportunity to take a shot at Iran, a significant geopolitical shot at that, something that clearly riled up Iranis as well. That's something we're very unlikely to see more of now simply because of how uh, the situation has changed. Mohammed bin Salman even seems to have changed uh, a bit over the past few years. Rather than taking this more brash approach that he that he took over the the beginning of his sort of rise, uh, he's taken a step back now and is sort of trying to some, get himself into this position where he's going to lead Saudi Arabia into the future. I think this is a good point to mention that Saudi that Saudi Arabia has been trying to establish diplomatic ties again with with. Uh, we always get a cat as a guest. Always, yeah. right? And my cat have, is is particularly. Uh, an attention, uh, an attention seeker. Uh, so Saudi Arabia has really been trying to to fix its regional rivalries recently. So Iran was a great example earlier. We saw we saw uh, Saudi Arabia reestablish some ties with Iran. We've seen uh, uh, Saudi Arabia reestablish diplomatic ties with with the Syria. We've seen them reestablish diplomatic ties with Qatar ahead of the World Cup. This is a very interesting Saudi Arabia that we're seeing moving forward, and I think that's also reflecting in WWE shows. I am of the opinion that Sami Zayn's return this weekend is not a coincidence and that for at least a small part of that has to be due to Saudi's improved relations with Syria because 
Syrians were not welcome in Saudi Arabia for a significant portion of time. That's just a fact. And Sami Zayn himself might not have been comfortable going. I haven't had a chance to speak to him. I really hope he does open up about this at some point because I saw him you know, posting on Twitter yesterday about uh, visiting Mecca and 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 and, uh, and making that pilgrimage there, which is really wonderful. I'm glad he gets to have that opportunity. But I'd like to know a bit more about the details behind it. What do you two think? He's made comments in the past, I don't know if you remember better than I do, John, where he said that he he didn't know why he wasn't going on those shows and that he didn't really want to do them anyway. Mm. It sounded very much as though it was a exactly as Brandon says, like he publicly would state he didn't know the reasons, but it was one where it was assumed he's not welcome there and he's not exactly knocking on the door to go on these shows. And it seemed to be mm-hmm. just this both sides were, were happy to be at this distance. And now all of a sudden, thus Kevin Owens was on that greatest Royal Rumble show that, of course, Zane was not on and mm-hmm. afterward did not return for the next show. Brian Danielson as well did not return. John Cena. Did John not Cena, after which that. would be the most prominent name not to do these shows. And keeping with the timeline here, the, the second show of that agreement is November 2nd of 2018, exactly yeah. one month after <laughs> the murder of Jamal Hashoji. And that, to me, was the – that was the crossroads where that was where it was the most – backlash the company got over this and they powered through they did this deal amongst so much criticism (laughs) and they got through it and it does seem that over time it has just become that these shows are happening and it's it's the strategy in action that it wears down your audience it is Uh those that speak about it are almost criticized for routinely bringing all of this stuff up and it's like a segment of your audience becomes the ones that are most offensive of these shows. But that to me was the, the turning point was that uh, November 2018 show. It's such a significant show. You're absolutely right, uh, John. I think it's a, it's a key example on reputation laundering and what it really means long-term because Saudi, uh, uh, WWE really stayed the course and, and powered through with that event. And I think there's a real argument to be made that it went a significant way in actually maintaining at least a portion of Saudi Arabia's as overall image. Like it wasn't completely shattered at that point during this PR nightmare. The fact that WWE was willing to go, they hosted their event and nothing came of it. No government pressure at the end. Nothing came of it simply allowed other companies to quietly, much quieter than WWE, continue to uh, m- make deals and continue their partnerships with Saudi Arabia. It was. It's also just so ironic and interesting that the only person who actually took a stance at the time was the current person who owns the, the at least portion of the WWE, and that's Ari Emanuel, who at the time returned the $400 million investment that the Saudi uh, public investment fund had made into Endeavor. He returns that money and decides, I'm so scared for my life, I'm going to walk around with a bodyguard. So it's really interesting to see the different reaction between Ari Emanuel and Vince McMahon when it came to Saudi Arabia at the time. And I think that's something that I'm going to be interested to see moving forward, whether Ari Emanuel has completely squashed his concerns with Saudi Arabia and is going to continue this. I have no, I don't believe he's going to... Uh, hinder the ongoing relationship, but I wonder if he's going to want to extend it, uh, thrive within it a bit more, or if he's going to bring that kind of partnership to the UFC as well. That was that was purely a, a moral c- consideration for him? At the time? Yeah. I mean, it had to be. Why else yeah. would he, why else would, why would, why would he take the money back? What was he worried about other than that? Why would he give back, sorry, the investment? It seemed to me like this was 
a rare, and it's rare for Ari Emanuel because it doesn't really seem to be something he does. He doesn't really have any qualms about anything. I mean, he's, he lets the UFC basically run itself, and it hasn't bothered him in any way. And, and UFC does business in Abu Dhabi. Right? Exactly. The UFC does business in Abu Dhabi, but Abu Dhabi also has a far better reputation than Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's not, it's not the equivalent of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, let's say, has a lot more reputation laundering to do and a lot more human rights abuses to distract from than the UAE. I mean, it's a much older country as well, as well. But uh, the UAE has a far better branding and marketing team, let's just say, behind it, because the vast majority of the world doesn't see it as the same kind of authoritarian government as, as Saudi Arabia. So WWE's partnership with the, U- with the UAE has never been as controversial as, say, uh, WWE's with Saudi Arabia. Maybe you can also give your own uh, thoughts and insight in a sliding doors scenario. We could have been in a position where this would be the first WWE event in Saudi Arabia with a pending sale uh, when the public investment fund was linked to being one of the, the the bidders for the company. Do you feel that that was ever something that was realistic or is this something where there was just too much to take on in terms of Saudi Arabian ownership of WWE and how it would navigate the the, the U.S. broadcast market and with, with sponsors? Do you feel like that would have been a, 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 something that WWE could have navigated in their day-to-day business? They reportedly made a bid on Formula One, too, but didn't get it. Yeah, they've been making bids at Western companies, and I don't think that that's sort of the best idea for Saudi Arabia. I mean, they've att- they've already attempted to enter the West. We've seen, okay, let's let's take it from here. They've, we've seen these sort of this evolution in their sports strategy from simply trying to host events. Now they've proven themselves to be this great location to host events, whether it be Jeddah or Riyadh, wherever wherever it may be. They've been able to host these mega shows. Now they've gone on to this idea where they want to own uh, either the companies themselves or rival competitors. Uh, to these companies, so they have Live Golf to compete with with the PGA, but Live Golf has run into so many uh, obstacles and issues and scandals in its very very short time in the United States that I think that that's that's played as a significant warning to to Saudi Arabia, and it also doesn't make sense to me why Saudi Arabia would be so interested in the WWE. The Formula One makes sense because it's international, but the WWE at the end of the day is an American product. And I don't think Saudi's sports ambitions and its future lies in the West as much as I believe it lies in Asia. I'm not the only person who's, who's spoken about this before, but uh, I, I really believe that Saudi Arabia's efforts and the vast majority of the events it intends to hold in the future, onwards on up to 2027, it's going to be based in Asia and the Middle East rather than in the Western world. It's even making those types of global alliances right now when it comes to its alliances with China and, 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 other, and other countries within Asia. So I, I really think another great example of this is Saudi Arabia's World Cup ambitions recently because they've... They, had there were reports, very significant reports, that Saudi was planning to make a 2030 World Cup bid alongside Egypt and Greece. Now, why would Saudi Arabia want to do that? Saudi Arabia, in this case, first of all, is trying to circumvent issues that would have come up with attempting to vote for another World Cup in the Arab world so soon after Qatar hosts the World Cup in 2022. But honestly, I think it was the fact that it picked Egypt in Africa as a partner and Greece in Europe shows you how Saudi Arabia visualizes itself and where its position is in the world right now, and how it's almost a conduit to these various continents based on its strategic positioning. I think the way it hosts events and the way it's thinking about sports in the future plays the same path. It is targeting Middle East, North Africa, the African continent, Asia, South, South, Southeastern Asia, and those, those specific locations in particular, I think are Saudi Arabia's interest. Does that really match up with the WWE? 
I don't think so. So in many ways, I think Saudi Arabia dodged the bullet by not by not buying the WD. Whatever actually happened, say this was real, say they were very close. I think Saudi Arabia dodged the bullet by not buying it. And I think the WWE overall dodged the bullet as well. It might have sounded great to Vince to, you know, succession style sell to the foreigners and go private, but uh I don't think that that would have been a great long-term result for the WWE because Saudi Arabia right now's government is under a position where the general entertainment authority is run by one of Mohammed bin Salman's best friends. Like these this is not uh these are not entities that are going to operate something like the WWE as a massive business. They don't care how profitable it is. So what they could have bastardized this you know, decades old organization into something I don't think I would have wanted to see. And at the same time, I don't think it lines up with their overall political strategy. And you're talking about Turkey El Ashik. I hope I'm saying that right. The, the chairman of the, the chairman of uh, GEA. He, he's been featured a few times by WB, including <laughs> at, the, at the greatest Royal Rumble. He got to, to hold the belt up. They did a press right. conference before this event uh, mm-hmm. where he, he was featured and he sort of prompted a, an MBS chant, which there was today, by the way, this time prompted by, you know, uh, Triple H thinking, MBS and and the king. Um, so is he like what, what kind of a, a political figure is is he in Saudi Arabia? Because we see him a lot, but we don't know that much about him. Well, that's what he likes. He he sees himself as sort of a shadow figure. He's one of Mohammed bin Salman's old uh, old uh, friends, let's say, and has has risen alongside Mohammed bin Salman over the past few years. Not regarded as one of the most intelligent human beings, as far as I can tell, based on what I've t- what I've heard from people I've spoken to, but considered extremely, extremely powerful and extremely influential. So his position is like a writer, than- a poet, or something like that. Pardon? I've heard that he's a writer, a poet. Is he? No, I, I actually not. Uh, I'm not aware of that segment. I actually, I actually do know. I know he's not popular in Egypt, for instance. He came to Egypt and attempted to buy multiple. Uh, uh, football teams, including Egypt's most beloved, uh, like like club, Al Ahli Club, he ended up buying his own football team and renaming it Pyramids FC. I mean, even the name was lazy and stupid, right? And just throwing a bunch of money at it, trying to basically do what other, like the UAE did with with Manchester City, etc. But he came to do it in Egypt and basically was seen as a big joke at the time. So he's at least been able to present himself as a bit more of a serious figure uh, to the West. But I mean, you even you even see how he presents himself, the way he holds the belt, the way he talks. This is not a person who is uh, who was groomed for this type of spotlight. Let's just put it that way. But he's earned this position simply based on the fact that he either entertains Mohammed bin Salman or is legitimately a close friend of his. When we go back to 2018, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, he did this big U.S. tour at the time, and it seemed to be as much, you know, selling himself as the new face of Saudi Arabia. He was on the cover of Time magazine. It seemed like that was such a significant push for the country. Would you, based on your, your previous answer, it seems like that that is less of an initiative for them is the, the U.S. and that image in terms of rehabilitating that image. Would you state that that is still a high priority or one that it is not as not as essential as it was maybe five years ago? I definitely say it's not as essential. It's pretty much the reason why I don't I don't stick with the term sports washing so much unless I'm making a very, very specific point, because it's so easy for people now to say, well, OK, I know all the problems. How have they how have they laundered this this issue? And Saudi Arabia is aware of this exact thing. They no longer care. 
<laughs> to be honest with you, I don't think they care very much whether their their reputation is is improved or if they've distracted from human rights abuses. Because you know why? Money still talks. And no matter what they do, they offer some money and people are going to show up. All these major events have come to Saudi Arabia. And at the same time, I don't think Bin Salman gives a damn what the United States in particular thinks. Why? Because he's rising up as a legitimate competitor to the United States. We're in a world right now that's resource scarce and impacted by a war in Ukraine. And Saudi Arabia is an oil-rich heavyweight that continues to have this type of sway, and he's influencing it far more now than before in the past couple of years. The relationship between Saudi and the United States is very, very strange right now. Actually, that, I should have mentioned that as part of the reason why I don't think the WWE sale was a very smart idea either. There would have definitely been significant pushback from the government. I believe, uh, at that point. But Saudi Arabia's relationship with, with the U.S. is very strained. They're going to remain competitive foes, and it's part of the reason why Saudi's creating this, I don't know what how you want to call it, new global structure, new global order, uh, east of, of the United States. And we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. And if you watch very carefully, you'll see that Saudi sports ambitions are shifting dramatically from where they were in 2018. We're, I mean, even this is even becoming evident on the WWE shows. I think you uh, hit the nail on the head on, on so many fronts that, that I've observed as well is the idea of image enhancement. And, you know, we use these terms like it's, it's a bad look or bad optics. It's all they are. They power mm-hmm. through uh, like that. That November 2018 show to me was was very informative, just in the yes. sense of we will embat whatever headlines come our way. There was even you know an impact on, on the stock at the time. Like there was you know financial mm-hmm. hit that the company took, but they powered through. They get their payments every single mm-hmm. year, and it's an audience that I think as we go show by show, it's fewer and fewer that are necessarily wanting to revisit these topics. And I, it's an effective strategy. And I think that can be a frustrating part for people, but it is what these governments and companies like WWE have realized over time is that we, we can withstand criticism. We can withstand bad optics as long as we are able to meet these revenue markers. It's a win for us. I don't think there's a bigger example of this, John, than the 2022 World Cup, what we just witnessed in Qatar. People spent 10 years, 10 years making a case for why there shouldn't be a World Cup in Qatar. I tend to think some of those arguments were a bit xenophobic, personally. I agree on a lot of the fronts, of course, when it comes to migrant workers. I've done the reporting myself. So, I mean, my work speaks for itself there. But did anything change? They hosted a World Cup that some... Have, call, have since called the greatest World Cup and had a phenomenal final. That's what people remember from that now. And Qatar has since reemerged as a much more significant uh, force to be reckoned with in the world stage than before. Nobody knew what Qatar was before. It definitely wasn't the country in the Middle East you think of first. But not only did Qatar emerge from this as you know a recognizable nation, but it also emerged with influence within the region. It A few years ago, Qatar was blockaded by the rest of the Gulf. So that includes Saudi Arabia, that includes, I mean, Egypt is North Africa, but Egypt was part of this blockade. Uh, Saudi was, the, U- the UAE were. All these countries had completely exiled and isolated uh, Qatar. But when they realized that it was inevitable that Qatar was going to host this incredible World Cup event, they wanted a piece of the action too and made amends with the country. Qatar didn't have to change everything, anything about its policies, anything about who it represents, who it backs, where its money is going, which countries it chooses to fund, and how different its foreign policy is to that of the rest of the Middle East and the GCC. None of that had to change. Qatar didn't have to do anything. 
Qatar made slight adjustments to uh, its migrant policies, slight adjustments to the kafala system in uh, in Qatar. But other than that, it bowed down to nobody and it got exactly what it wanted in the end. And unfortunately, that's the blueprint for the future. There's really nothing that can stop these countries uh, from moving forward like this. Is, is Qatar an- another country that you could see working with WB in the future? Uh, WCEO Nikan has, has done a couple talks lately where he's mentioned site fees and how they want to get more site fees. I mean, Saudi Arabia is a huge site fee. They also got one from Puerto Rico, uh, from the UK, uh, the Cardiff government. Um, it, it, he said he wants a site fee for every PLE, all 12 of them. So uh, is there another opportunity to help with, uh, with a country that, whose image is not that good? I mean, possibly. I, I think Qatar is at a stage now where it no longer cares. And Qatar, because it actually communicated and with, with, with the West and said, here's what we will change and come, come see what we have, the amends that we have made. Qatar is in a better position than Saudi Arabia and then the United Arab Emirates in terms of uh, people willing to accept events there at this point. I mean, if a World Cup's happened there, what, how, how much worse can it get really at this point? WWE going there isn't going to create much headlines. Uh, I'd, say it's, I'd say it's possible. Qatar has a bunch of empty stadiums that it needs to use for something. <laughs> Potentially a world, a, a, a Olympic Games in the future. But other than that, they're going to need to be paying site fees for certain events or else it's just going to become a ghost town. And that's always been the problem with something like this, that they were expecting it to become a ghost town. Uh, I, can, I, can see, I can see a WWE event there. I honestly don't know enough about Qatar's history and, and its, and its uh, wrestling history in particular. Uh, I, know, I know that there have been WWE events in Kuwait. I know in the past that there have been events in Saudi Arabia. I know that there have been house shows in Egypt, I believe. But there are certain Arab countries that have a history and a love for wrestling. I mean, I was a wrestling fan in Egypt as a kid, for instance, and everybody knew all the all the big uh, wrestlers from the Attitude Era, like Egypt, it was very very popular in Egypt at the time. And Saudi Arabia, same thing. Like we grew up, I grew up in, in in across the Middle East, so I spent time in Bahrain as well, where wrestling was also very popular. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if WWE does sort of this like Middle Eastern tour. But at the same time, I also wouldn't be surprised if there is a clause somewhere in its agreement or an unspoken agreement, so to say, that. If you're holding events in Saudi Arabia, we don't want you holding events somewhere else. Yeah, These Gulf countries are very, very competitive. So don't underestimate the competition between, say, a Qatar and a Saudi Arabia or a, a Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in particular. Hell, there's even competition between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. So they're all ultra competitive and they all want the best events. So it's going to be interesting to see. There's a super chat here that comes in for us. Uh, Kareem, thank you so much for your incredible insight and info. As a fan of golf, Live Golf has been the worst thing. Hope that Man United <laughs> does not get bought by Saudi Arabia. So there is uh, one, one I think, chat. I think uh, Man U is, is potentially being bought by Qatar, actually, not Saudi Arabia. Okay. I think, it's, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a royal family member from Qatar, if I'm not mistaken. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before we wind down here, just as a, an overall viewpoint in you know so much of your coverage, Kareem, what has made combat sports such an outlet for this? And I, I look at the impact that a figure like a Ramzan Kadyrov has in mixed martial arts circles. It's like it to me, it's unfathomable that you would imagine seeing major NBA stars here in photo ops and nonetheless. And this like, especially in the MMA sphere, this is almost just like, this is routine. This stuff happens. And it is, I mean, you're one of the few that reports on this consistently and brings it to light and, like is your thought just the fact that it is like this is still like the outlier of sports that combat sports kind of holds this this territory that makes them susceptible to this it's a fight or pay issue maybe as well um there there's a lot of factors i guess that go into it <laughs> i think everything you just mentioned is 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 really important john because the the fact that combat sports is an outlier as you say in a niche sport leaves it much more susceptible to the vulnerabilities that come with being a niche sport, for instance, and not mainstream, the lack of attention, of course, the fighter pay issues that you mentioned, all that absolutely factors into this. But there's something that goes beyond this. And there's a trend that's there and something I want to keep delving into more and more, which is why do so many dictators find themselves attracted to combat sports? What is it about displays of violence and, you know, ultra masculinity that, that that's such a selling point for dictators? Because, it, it even occurs with dictators that you don't ex- that don't even have this you know ultra ma- masculine image. I mean, you had this with with uh, Gaddafi back in the day in Libya. You know, you had this uh, with with Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. Which these weren't exactly your manly men figures. At least when you talk about Ramzan Kadyrov, we know that he utilizes combat sports in a way to create some sort of socialization strategy for his own people. As emerging from civil wars and knowing that there was a significant amount of extremism and Islamic. Uh, a radicalization taking place in Chechnya. Ramzan Kadyrov used sports like 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 MMA and boxing to reshape Chechen men in his own ideal image. What he wanted Chechens to be: either fighters on uh, in a cage for his own pleasure and for his prestige, of course, and reputation laundering, or fighters for him on a battlefield. Now, really getting the actual glory there. So. There's a there's at least some sort of like logistic logical structure for Ramzan Kadyrov, where he's trying to create fighters who can either represent him, uh, you know, for for prestige and in the UFC for all these various different sports washing games, or on the battlefield where he has actual, you know, he is actually useful to say a Vladimir Putin. So with Ramzan Kadyrov, you've got legitimate purposes, right? And with, even with Putin, you'd see that he would associate himself with combat sports because he wanted to present himself as this very healthy, strong, masculine leader. So clearly, when it comes to authoritarians, they are so uh, self-conscious. They are so uh, insecure with themselves that they simply require the presence of a much stronger, much meatier <laughs> man next to them for them to feel secure about themselves clearly here that's really what it comes down to or at least when you really break this down that's what it looks like but in, on a wider sense they're trying to rub shoulders with people to make themselves look good you know what's what's better than a than your dictator being a magnanimous leader who's actually looking after all these uh all these fighters 
and and rubbing shoulder with you know the best and manliest people in the country, the people who you should always be like. It doesn't surprise me that Ramzan Kadyrov did a lot of this while he was purging gay men from his republic as well. Like think of the contrast right there, building up the manliest of the manly fighters for himself while absolutely eliminating the so-called feminine ones, right? The contrast couldn't be clear, and I think that's very reflective of how authoritarians see combat sports in general. Do you think you'll ever write a book, Kareem? Is that in your future? (laughs) I'll tell you that I'm in the process of writing a proposal, finishing that, and maybe that's the beginning of writing my first book. I have multiple book ideas, but I'm absolutely intending to write books. (laughs) I'm a big fan of the documentary When We Were Kings, and that's about the fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman Mm -hmm. in Zaire, which was the name of the country at the time. And there's all sorts of talk in there about Emperor Mobutu, right? And I didn't didn't even realize that. I guess that's, I don't don't know what the the business deal was, but that could be another example. It absolutely is. I think Muhammad Ali, unfortunately, had quite a few early examples. I mean, his thriller in Manila was not much better. Those were two events that could be considered examples of reputation launderings that worked that worked to the benefit of the dictators that hosted those uh, those fights. Those are some of the most legendary fights that, that that have occurred in boxing, and they have a terrible history behind them. The difference is that Muhammad Ali made amends later in life, didn't ignore the things that he did, made amends for them, and actively pursued being a better human being thereafter. Right. His activism speaks for itself later in life. So I, I, I look back on, on Muhammad Ali with you know, a softer uh, perspective than a lot of these other athletes who really doubled down on their positions. My last question, Kareem, is, you know, with as much writing as you do about a lot of these, what are difficult topics for a lot of fans to understand? But I think it's imperative that they be aware of what they're consuming, why these things are happening. What do you sense is sort of the the fan engagement, the fan apathy towards, you know, shows like this, for instance, that we're going to see on Saturday where people are going to log on and they're going to watch uh, a big wrestling event and treat it like another wrestling show. Do you sense that there is still a healthy amount of people that, that want to dig into the politics of these shows, or do you feel like it is to the advantage of these companies that there's such a wide amount that don't care to look what, what is underneath the rock of some of these shows? I think based on the engagements in my articles, I can tell that there is at least a segment of people that still care, but I would, I would have to assess it as a minority. Unfortunately, the truth is, is that sports is a really, people sometimes think, why sports? Why would, you know, authoritarians, why would politicians even go through this effort of putting so much effort into, into, into sports? Is it really worth it? Is a soft power strategy really that useful? And when it comes to the fans, it absolutely is. When you really think about the average person, they're coming to sit down, whatever sport it may be, whatever your favorite sport may be, you're usually there as a form of escapism, aren't you? You're trying to get away from your day. You're trying to, this is, this is one of the best parts of your day. You want to sit and watch this and just enjoy yourself and not have to think about the sh- like all the shit that makes you feel terrible in your life. That's when they want you. That's when you are most vulnerable to the different types of subliminal messaging that appear in events like these WWE shows, right? People are there just to feel good and to be happy. They don't want to think of anything terrible. They are much more likely to be engaged with the concept of, oh, look, this does look so much better. Oh, oh great. Now I feel much better about what I'm doing. The ability to, to sway people's opinions is far greater when they are not being defensive immediately. And they are most vulnerable when they're watching sports. That's why sports fans are such loyal, 
idiots when it comes to stuff like this sometimes. Um, it breaks my heart. It really does because there are some people who are so aware and so uh, self-aware in what they're doing and what they're watching. And that's fine. I'm not telling anybody to stop or to boycott. I've never, ever, none of my articles have ever called for a boycott or a ban or anything of the sort. That's just not, it's just not what I do. All I want is for people to be self-aware and to be educated and not to ignore things and not to participate in what I call willful ignorance. Unfortunately, most fans, in order to maintain this uh, facade of escapism have no issues at all being willful ignorance, willful you know idiots at this point. Well, Karim, why don't you tell us a bit about uh, where uh, a lot of our listeners can go find out more more of your work? You've launched uh, your own Substack. I can't recommend it enough that people go and uh, check out all of Kareem's work. Like he is honestly, to, in my opinion, in, in a class uh, by himself. So, Kareem, the the floor is yours to let people know. Thank you so much, John. Yes, I did launch my, my own Substack a couple of months ago. It is called Sports Politica. You can find it at sportspolitica.news. And yes, I cover a wide variety of sports there. It's not, it's not just MMA. It's not just combat sports. It's pretty much a bit of everything and whatever I find interesting at the time. And of course, you can find my work and you just find me in general on Twitter at Zidane Sports. And stay tuned for the reporting I'll be doing coming up very soon for the New York Times and The Guardian. I've got some big stories uh, cooking that I think are going to be very interesting to people. And one of them actually ties in with Saudi Arabia and the topics we've been talking about today. So people should keep an eye for that for The New York Times. All right. And you have an invite to come and break the news whenever you sign a book deal. We, we look forward to it. And uh, thanks so much, Kareem. You do fantastic work. And I hope we can have you uh, back sometime. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to both of you. Keep up the excellent, excellent work. And thank you so much for just being present in this sport, like in, this, in, in, in wrestling in general. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very thanks, much, Kareem. Kareem. That was Kareem Zidane, everyone. So go check him out at uh, Sports Politica. That's P-O-L-I-T-I-K-A dot news on Substack. It's a, a great read of uh, covering a lot of significant uh, topics in the industry. So, Brandon, as we go into Saturday, sort of what are what are some of your views when when this time of the year comes around where WWE is going to, to Saudi Arabia and seeing what the presence is and just your overall thoughts? Like you watched most of the press conference and that's, that's a big part of it. Like of what I saw, like it's a very big commercial for Saudi Arabia and it is more and more, we, we kind of saw like a very hard push at the beginning and then they kind of took their hands off the, off the wheel for several but years. Wouldn't even say the, the name of the country during the broadcast. That's right. Just large scale international event was the, like the coding of the word. Then, and then eventually they, you could say the city name. And slowly they have just moved back and it is, effectively like these have just become like any other shows that the company promotes as their monthly events. But wh where's sort of your viewpoint of where the, the audience is by, by and large, because you are going to get differing opinions. Very much so. Um, I, I think as our comments probably. <laughs> I, I think it's important to, to point out here that um, because it's easy to, I, and I, I do feel, you know, I'm, I'm like checking myself sometimes when I'm writing and talking about this stuff. It's very easy to, to sort of glance at this and just say, you know, uh, are you just being xenophobic against, you know, Saudi Arabia here? Um, or, or there's a lot of whataboutism about, you know, I mean, look at the United States and, and all, all the things that you can say about what the United States government is doing. And the, the difference is that WWE is not, you know, doing a deal with the United States government in the way that they're doing a deal with um, Saudi Arabia. And, and I've, I've heard people point out, look, WWE has done shows in China. What, 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 where's the outrage against China? They haven't done a show in China in a while, but um, the difference is that they're not being paid $50 million to do it. And it's not involving marketing for 
for that government to put it over to say what a nice place it is. You've got literally today, this is sort of the most explicit endorsement of the Saudi government by a major W executive that, that we've seen yet, where Triple H himself, Paul Levesque, who is the chief content officer of the company, said, you know, explicitly thanked King Salman and uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And there was an MBS chant that followed. It's a it's a pretty clear political, I don't know if endorsement is the right word, but 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 you know, a form of support. Yeah, and and I think it was an important distinction that was made by Kareem in that this is not a reflection of the audience that gets a big WWE show that get to see these, you know, these, these big time wrestlers come to a part of the world that they don't get the, the, the WWE in any kind of frequency at the same time, your ability to look at WWE for being so noble to be doing this. These shows would not be happening without unprecedented, uh, rights being, or uh, fees being spent to bring these shows like the, the day this deal ends, you are not getting these, these shows. So I cannot look at this as just, we are, we are going about our way of uh, fixing the world with our exported WWE events uh, twice a year. It comes with a, a great, great profitability factor for WWE to do these shows. And I think that if we are simply analyzing this as a business transaction, fine. But once we get into the idea that these are some great noble cause out of the goodness of our heart, that is ignoring why the fact is these shows happen. Yeah, It's two or three WrestleManias worth in ticket sales. Uh, and, and the length of the deal is... It, 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 ser- it serves a very beneficial function to the government in that it's, it's it sort of, you know, it just becomes so normal. It's going to be a decade uh, by the time this is done with in 2027 or so. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's, you know, if, if it's to make your, your uh, criticism of the government, if it happens uh, to wear it out and to, to make it apathetic. But I think the, at least the one good thing that I think we can get out of discussions like this. And I think, I would like to think WrestleNomics in general is that you use wrestling as sort of a window into, in this case, geopolitics or into understanding something, something larger about the world and how power works. I think it's a, it's a very in, instructional lesson that you can take from this as just a small sliver of how th- this works at, at such a high level and how this is, you know, permeates into professional wrestling as the strategy of a major, uh, country such as Saudi Arabia, for instance. So that is coming up uh, this weekend. I want to touch on a a couple of topics before we wrap things up. Uh, AEW collision has been confirmed for the United Center in Chicago. Mm -hmm. What could that mean? What could that mean? I don't don't know. I don't want want to use his name, but it, it, it might mean someone might be in AEW again. Well, what we do know is it meant 4,200 tickets, uh, roughly, were distributed, according to WrestleTix, during the presale on Thursday. Today is the on-sale for yes. that collision event. Uh, and I guess we'll have a better ind- uh, indication of what that means uh, when we have a number out today. I would think that the the automatic sellout is probably it, – it, this is not going to be necessarily no, – this is not looking super strong. Of the first dance. And you can certainly look at, okay, well, we – we put this out there as the the wink and a nod that you had on Wednesday, and you can always throw out CM Punk's name to make it cl- crystal clear. I guess what you're looking at is, you know, where where CM Punk, uh, what his viability is going to be after all that he has been through headline wise over the past nine ten months, and what this means to run two shows. Remember, two shows in Chicago over the course of five nights because it is June 17th, and they are back the following Wednesday at the Wintrust Arena in Chicago, which has about 
roughly around the same tickets out. 4,200, I believe, is the range. Yeah, I, I don't think CM Punk's drawing power is going to be terribly diminished um, by by the controversy of, of the fight that happened in September. Um, but his return is, is not a big enough deal to cause another fast sell of the United Center like we saw August 2021, where on a rumor that he would, I mean, it was a per- perpetrated rumor <laughs> that, that he was going to be there, that United Center sold out very quickly. Um, I don't know how fast that United Center August 2021 show sold out the second rampage, um, but it was real fast. And yes, it's only pre-sale that's, that's happened and we're only beginning to see general, but this is, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 distributed and my glancing at Twitter just now. So, I mean, this is a huge building, right? 14,000 or so it could, it could probably fit. So this is going to be well short of that. And it, I guess it just tells you, I don't know, maybe you know, look at this in, in the context of, yes, there's going to be another Chicago show uh, just after this, but it's not that big of a deal. His return here, even though he hasn't been around since, since September. So, I, I mean, everyone expects Punk on the show on the 17th. Do you think that that meaningfully bumps up some of these other uh, collision dates? And did the the early numbers for those collision shows, the, the Canadian dates that they have out uh, and Newark on top of it, did they surprise you on the low end? Where did you uh, did you have any um, strong thoughts either way when you saw those uh, numbers? Yeah, I didn't give it a lot of thought, but it, it's I don't know if I would have predicted Hamilton being under a thousand. Um, mm-hmm. but it is, and I think it's still as far as I know, um, you, you don't know who the, the talent is there and people are kind of treating it like rampage. And it's one of the, the risks of doing more content, although you get paid more presumably for, for running collision is that you're going to dilute your audience, your television viewing audience, and you're going to dilute your live event business. Um, but it's, if you're going to get paid a huge media revenue money for it, then it's, it's worth it. Um, but it's, I think you know, we, we listened to that interview with Raphael Norfi on um, Talk is Jericho recently, where he said that, I forget the percentages, but basically the vast majority of the ticket sales happened at the very opening of sales and, and like on the day of the show. So it's something to look at, you know, how do these sales go towards towards the end? Maybe there'll be a little bit of bump once he actually shows up on June 17th. Maybe that'll help the, the rest of the collision shows, but I it's it's a determination to make once the shows actually happen. I, I don't expect it's going to be massive. I, like, I don't expect these shows are going to be sold out. Um, maybe get a bump of a couple more thousand. Tony Khan did a uh, media call on Thursday that uh, Brandon and I were, were both on. I think you were you're, you were second in, in, yes. in the lineup, uh, yes. getting all the get way out there. Way. Yeah, my, my highest performance yet. I, I think I was third. So um, have, you, have you perfected unmuting yourself? I was so the last time I was on I did not have to unmute myself and then this time I physically did have to unmute myself so I the answer is no I have not figured the moderator it comes on and says make sure you unmute yourself but you if you're calling in on your phone you can't unmute yourself until you you in, until anyway it's it's not important because it affects like 12 people but yeah, yeah. W- one day I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll record it from like my perspective and you can see what, what I'm dealing with on a, on both ends but um, you asked like the, the obvious uh, question that I think everyone wanted the answer to, and that was the status of AEW collision, its television deal. And does it have any impact on the length of the existing deal that includes dynamite and rampage? And it would seem that in the roundabout answer that Tony Khan gave was that, no, it is still on the same timeline is the same. It would sound like they are 
getting paid something for collision, but this is not something that has any bearing on dynamite and rampage and this extension that would take them over the course of another year. Yeah. I I take this to mean there's an extra show, but it's still a deal that ends either at the end of this year or the end of 2024. And I've tweeted that reported that nobody's corrected me. So I assume that's right. Um, So there's, is is there more money for collision? Um, I would hope so. That may be Although we, we did learn Sunday David night. Zaslav just, uh, you know, called up Tony Khan one night and said, two more we hours. Did. We need two more hours. It's, uh, yes, he, he, he that, that was an interesting, you know, tidbit that he, he attributed David Zaslav. David, David Zaslav, who he called one of the most powerful and intelligent men in media on this planet. Uh, has become a controversial figure recently in light of the WGA strike. But anyway, he, he attributed do, do, David Zaslav. Do you think Zaslav. he has him as Zaz in his, in his phone? I would. He, he's on that, that level with him. <laughs> I hope so. Hey, TK. Um, yeah. But are they getting more money for it? I mean, that, that maybe I, I assume they have to be getting more money for it. I don't, I don't think you agree to take on millions of dollars in annual expense to produce another show if they're not going to help you pay for it. Um, but this deal is, is not a new deal. There is no new deal that I expected based on the reporting going into the, uh, the upfront last week, Wednesday. Um, there's no new TV deal. There's no billion dollar TV deal, at least not yet. Um, so that's still something that's being negotiated, presumably. But it, it raises the question to me, why, why wasn't that squashed by somebody who knew better uh, earlier? It's, it's one of the questions that is out there and how all of this – Oh, you also put in like the timeline that you pretty much have the WWE and AEW rights that if, this, if they pick up the option year, like they're roughly up at about the same time and does that play into – any of these negotiations does one have anything to do with the other in terms of just who is talking to who if someone is bidding for wwe and this other professional wrestling company their rights are up to like is is there any um just you have two options that are on the table and up at roughly the same time our our, our friend brandon ross was tweeting yesterday that maybe wbd will bid for both Maybe WBD will uh, get WB as well. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and, and maybe WBD owns a, a piece of uh, AEW, um, and I think that would dissuade them from helping their major competitor. Uh, and I think WBD has certainly put the message out there that they're all about cost discipline and, and being careful with what they spend on, not spending on more, but spending on better, although that sort of raises why <laughs> we need even more, two more hours of weekly AW content. But anyway, um, no, I think, you know, are there other bidders for, for AEW? There are all, all sorts of questions we could get into that we don't know the answers to about, well, when, when would AEW's exclusive window be up? We know now the Fox window has ended for WWE and SmackDown. Fox is on the open market. Raw is still in the exclusive right. window. Right. So I, I don't know. And as, as far as SmackDown, I think, you know, Amazon, um, maybe Fox, maybe NBC are the, are the major players there. Also on the call, uh, Sean Ross Sapp asked a really good question, too, about the pay-per-view strategy for AEW. Not only will Collision go up against several NFL games inevitably, but does this ultimately change your pay-per-view strategy to strictly Sunday nights? And Tony Khan did not give much of an answer to that but it would seem logical unless you're going to move up collision on on certain nights. To, to I took avoid. it as they're going to do all Sundays for pay-per-views going forward. I think that that is the conclusion you, you arrive at, that they're not going to be running Saturday night pay-per-views anymore. Which is going to mean full gear. We'll go head-to-head with Sunday night football. Boy, and as Nick Khan said, why are we going up against 
uh, Tom Brady and his return to the New England Patriots. That that was his that was his aha moment. Why are we doing Sunday nights? Tom Brady going back to New England. And and Tony's made every effort to avoid running any AEW shows during NFL telecasts, but that that looks to be coming to an end. Probably they'll probably have to run a full gear against Sunday Night Football, and Saturday nights will have some towards the end of the season. We'll have some NFL competition. So who was who was who was the winning con this week when it came to their respective uh, conferences? Tony, Nick, what what did you get more news out of uh, between between the two? I think Nick. Um, I think <laughs> Nikon is, is certainly more interesting to, to listen to when it comes to media strategy. Well, we we don't really hear uh, media strategy from from Tony. We hear you know some some storyline hyping and a lot of marketing for the show that's coming up, um, and a lot of roundabout sort of non answers about uh, whatever's going on in AEW. Um, but I I think Nick was especially. Uh, he's he's in sales mode at the point. Like he is he is actively sure. selling SmackDown and and to a lesser extent like all of their properties. But I think now that we know Fox is taking outside bids, like there is an incentive for him. I don't think it's a coincidence he's doing a lot of these more public talks in close proximity and right. knowing that it's you know they I think they there's want a to get the word out there to do coming out of what what Lightshed says is a, a meeting where Endeavor apparently prepared its investors to. Be, you know, be ready because Fox might not bid strongly for SmackDown. Um, Nick was then doing a conference talk the next day, even giving the factor out. 1.5x is is sort of what we expect, but we're going to try to over deliver on that. We're going to get strong upgrades here. So, so we're not going to get 4x. He did mention we're we're not going to expect 4x. So it's between 1.5 that. and 4. That's that's our gigantic range that we're hoping for. Yes. Um, I mean. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I, I would put it maybe a little bit over 1.5 if he's willing to say that. Uh, but you know, I, th- I thought those were the, the J.P. Morgan conference and the Moffat Nathanson conference uh, where he was pretty upfront and there was some decent insight into into business strategy, I thought. Well, maybe he'll do the Pollock Thurston conference, but that would require us to put our names together. No space in between. That's how these conferences work, Brandon. That's what I've learned this week. Maybe we could do that, yeah. We will see what happens. Uh, last thing here, uh, Dynamite on uh, Wednesday night. This was uh, a night where they did not have NBA playoff competition. 846,000 viewers, 0.32 in the demo and finishing fourth for the night be- behind two, two episodes of Vanderpump Rules. And Vanderpump Kel- Rules dominated the night. I was shocked. Do you- <laughs> what is happening on Vanderpump Rules? I learned on Where's Wednesday night that they're in their 10th season. I've really? never heard of this show until this no. season where it's just obviously uh, experts can tell me that obviously something big has happened, that this thing has exploded this season yeah. in popularity. Like it it was what, uh, second for the night behind the Survivor finale? It was number one. It beats. It was number one. Wow. Yes. So there you have it. Survivor I am watching. And dude, they did a three-hour finale on Wednesday night. I'm not even halfway through it. It's too long. Okay. Well, it, it, could you imagine three hours on a weeknight to follow a program? That's way too much. There, there was um. So that's a Bravo show, and that did very well. Um, there was no NBA game, so the demo for Dynamite here is quite good. Point three two. There's not that much movement in total viewership, but that's a pretty good demo relative to what they've been doing lately. Um, there wasn't any NHL game. Uh, NHL outranked Dynamite. This was a, a, a better than I would have would have predicted Dynamite rating. Uh, it's, but still, they're you know they're averaging well below what they were doing a year ago and they've got no CM Punk. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if he's going to appear on dynamite at all, if, if he's going to be able to help that out. 
Yeah, I, it's hard to imagine coming back on June 17th and not having some presence on that Wednesday in Chicago. Because if you are a fan that is just buying a ticket, I think you're you're naturally assuming Chicago, you get CM Punk. And yeah. even though it would seem to be that, you know, this whole deal is going to be show exclusive to CM Punk. And by the way, two, two things I got out of the conference, too, were um, he was asked about a brand split. He wouldn't give an answer. But the way he answered it, I took, you know, he was talking about allocating talent. He was talking about it in a hypothetical way that I don't think he would have used if he wasn't definitely going to do a brand split. And uh, Mercedes Monet, he was talking about nobody, nobody but me and her know, know what the plans are. So, so there must be plans uh, maybe for her to appear on Forbidden Door. He didn't say that, but that would be my assumption. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, all but said she was the odds on favorite to win last Sunday, the odds on yes. favorite. So obviously he was getting his, uh, the, the lines ahead of time for that, that New Japan resurgence show as well. So that was, uh, that was this week in, uh, in conferences. And Brandon, you are off to Las Vegas this week and you will be covering double or nothing. Uh, how are you, uh, looking at this, this show on Sunday night for the company? It's back to what has historically been a very strong market for them. This is, uh, the weakest, uh, pay-per-view that they have, at least ticket wise, that they have done in Las Vegas. A lot Vegas. of free tickets I heard. You can get, if you want to get it, get into the T-Mobile Center for free. Sounds like all you got to do is buy a burger and fries at, at this one restaurant. Um, but yeah, I, the, the main event is, is not that strong. This, this four way, which the, the build hasn't been great for, um, the card doesn't look super strong relative to these other ones. I assume the quality of the show is going to be really good. These pay-per-views are usually really good. Um, I'm, I don't know that we'll get some really um, great numbers about what, what this does on pay-per-view, but I don't know what this, I think this is going to do a low pay-per-view buy for them. Um, Tony likes to say that when the shows are really good, they do late buys. I imagine there's truth to that. Um, but there's, this is, this is the weakest that I felt a pay-per-view has been. Um, certainly since CM Punk has been around. Um, and I, I, I question whether this is going to do, you know, a hundred thousand or, you know, if, if it's going to do maybe a little bit more than that. I don't know. I'll take the over on, on a hundred over. That, that's fair. Maybe like o- over or under one fifteen. See, I have it right around one fifteen. I'll go, I'll go minuscule over minuscule over, which, which would be their lowest in a long time. The, the yeah. first double or nothing did something like 100,000. Yeah, I, I would no, say no TV. if this one achieved, I would say 130. I would I would take that as a big win. Um, and I would attribute that namely to anarchy in the arena, meaning a lot based on last year's match. And the buildup has been very strong for that match. And and you do have to give, I guess, some credit then that the the four way, at least the idea of three guys that have never headlined a show before being put in a position. But it would feel like it is the number two match on this show. But I, I would say 130 seems... I'll say today, it feels without reach, but I've been wrong in the past when it comes to uh, underestimating AEW numbers. We'll see what it means. And and then coming back a, a month later with Forbidden Door as well, which, I mean, Brandon's going to be on the road everywhere. He's going to Vegas. He's going to Toronto. He's going to Detroit. You're going to yeah. London, England for Money in the Bank, no, too? No, no, no. The, the, there's not enough subscribers for that. Um, but I, I, no, Toronto will be easy. It'll be a be a drive. But I do have, uh, I did get media access for both that and for, for Double or Nothing. Um yeah, I, if I assuming there's time, assuming this is not an epic uh, press conference, I will be calling in to the John and Way post show for for uh, double or nothing. So That's we'll right. talk about any any news coming out of the press conference or the event itself at that time. Do do the elite 
uh, lose on the pay-per-view and thus not available for the media? Is there any chance of the elite being uh, available to the media? I don't think they're going to do, do the media win or lose. There's no, it's usually title winners who, who show up at those, right? Um, so, so that's not a title match. The anarchy, yes, the anarchy and the arena match is not a title match, although it's, it's, you know, arguably the biggest match on the show. Um, but it's usually title winners. And I don't know, to me, to me, the, the far more interesting parts are, are when, uh, Tony Khan gets questions. If he answers, let's take, let's take a super chat here from our favorite MJ residual interest from 2018. When you two were my edge and the TV rights pushed the stock 120% this round, not as fun on the stock side. Wonder what happens to the stock now since it's valued for M and a, I think we made MJ from NG a lot of money in 2018. Um, I didn't get a commission on that, but, uh, I think he's, he's, he's much wealthier now. Um, the stock is not a, like it is not a uh, return to, you know, pre emergency meeting levels. Actually, as of uh, this minute, it is trading below a hundred dollars. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just, it hasn't been, hasn't been uh, below a hundred in a long time now. So that is uh, the latest. Do you see, do you, do you see the, completion uh, of the merger or more importantly once we get closer to a finalization of the domestic rights deals that this takes a uh, a higher turn does there have to be uh, a counter meeting of fully optimistic investors that think so. the stock will take a uh, another jump because they're probably baking in now like 1.5 as opposed to 1.8 in, in terms of a of a renewal and i think the 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 lack of certainty, which, you know, just necessarily there is about whether or not there's going to be a new deal when there is a new deal. If it's at 1.5, I would expect not that much movement or maybe a sell on results at, at that time that they can, you know, probably pretty quickly after that recover. Um, and maybe there's a, there's a, uh, a value, whatever, whatever TKO is valued at, um, maybe TKO goes a little bit higher than whatever WE was at, at the end because the merger will, will actually be finalized. All right, that's going to bring an end to this week's edition of Pollock and Thurston. So tune in. Uh, Way and I will be live immediately after Double or Nothing here on the Post Wrestling YouTube channel. And uh, uh, logistics pending, uh, we will uh, check in with uh, Brandon Thurston to see if it is an eventful press conference, an uneventful press conference, and he will give us the whole lowdown live. Shouldn't be a problem because I can just call you up on my phone as I'm walking away from the uh, the T-Mobile Center. I'm jealous that you will be done that show at about 9 p.m. local time. (laughs) I'm I'm leaving that morning, so I w- I'm getting up at like six in the morning. So oh yeah, I remember you telling me your itinerary. <laughs> I'm not that jealous of it. And because of Brandon's traveling, it will be a special Monday edition of WrestleNomics right. Radio. You will That's be right. home by then. Yeah. No. 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 I will be. I will be doing that live from Las Vegas. Okay, a live from Las Vegas edition. Maybe you should go out on the strip and uh... I'll try, try to get some neon lights in the, in the background or something. That would okay. Be we, we, we look forward to it. Uh, the, the, the must the must listen to WrestleNomics Radio every single week. Uh, so check that out. Patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. And you can also uh, sign up at postwrestlingcafe.com. Way and I will be up tonight with Rewind to SmackDown and then shows this week after Night of Champions, after Double or Nothing, and here at postwrestling.com. You can always keep up to date. And Brandon, have a safe trip to Vegas. We will chat with you Thank hopefully you. on Sunday night. And yes. anything else that you want to throw out there that you're working on? I don't think so. There's there's some backlog quarter hours that are going up right now for subscribers. Um, the news updates continue to happen. I think I'm decided on doing that permanently going forward. So, yeah, that the, all that stuff is there. I can tell you what's in it, but 
just just go and read it. So oh, you'll 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 get the latest news from the the Texas Attorney General's office. Oh, I can't, I can't wait. All right, yes. check them out. Uh, very very informative updates uh, from Brandon on a daily basis on the Russell Nomics Patreon. Thanks Three to days. everyone uh, that joined us. Deliver. Yes. Thanks, everyone, that joined us live, as well as Kareem Zidane uh, for joining us. Very informative discussion with him, and we will speak with you all later this weekend. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.